Howdy, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show where we talk about all the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And uh, let's just get started. I have uh, I have four movies. Uh, I also have four movies. All right, I'll go first then. You okay. went first last week. All right. It's my turn. Okay. And this is one you've seen, and I can't wait to talk to you about. Okay. Because you didn't like it. Yeah. And I quite did. Yeah. You know what it is? I do. It's called Ant-Man. That's right. It's uh, directed by Peyton Reed. And here's what I'll say. Having, uh, I actually haven't read your review yet, which is more a matter of time. Than, uh, I'm not, I'm not happy with my review. But so having talked to you about it on the Movie Journal, and uh, we were on the Out Now podcast. We right. didn't talk about that on the main episode this week uh, that is coming up. Wait, but, were you uh, listening while I was talking about it with Aaron and Abe? Uh, to some extent, it, we, here's what I did because okay. I didn't read your review. I did go back. Oh, okay. After I saw Ant Man, I went back and listened to that section okay. of the Out Now podcast, and I remember you talking about a movie journal. And here's what I'll say about it: I don't think I disagree with you on what the problems are. Right. I just disagree about the degree to which they are problems. Mm. <laughs> to me, the stuff that's good about Ant Man way overshadows the other stuff you're talking about, especially because I. It's not just Scott Lang. There's almost no one in that movie who's a real character. Yeah. Even when the actors are doing a good job. I did just, yeah. I, I like Evangeline Lilly. I disagree with you about her, but uh, I, I think, I think the actors are doing a good job. I don't know if I have a, a problem job. with her character. I think her character is probably fine. You don't I like mean, her as an actress? I think she does a good job. Uh, she's, she's, she's always serviceable. Like she's, she's a very functional actress. I, I wouldn't say she's bad. I don't know if that's actually, I think she has, I guess from she's, season one of Lost, I think she's grown quite a bit as an actress. Um, uh, so I, and I'm actually, uh, I don't know if the, can we spoil, what, what is a spoiler policy for Ant-Man? It's been uh, well, let's just say like, uh, spoilers for Ant-Man, I guess jump ahead like five minutes. Right. Um, okay. So spoilers for Ant-Man. Yeah. I am very much looking forward to the possibility of seeing Evangeline Lilly in upcoming Marvel movies as the new wasp. Uh, yes. Uh, very I'm, much. I'm, I'm excited for both of these characters to be part of a team. Um, I think that will be a lot of fun and I like, and they're so notably different. There are such different types of characters than the other Avengers that I'm excited to see the role that they will play, the very unique role that they will play on a team. So like, I don't mean to give the impression that I'm completely out on the character or the potential of Ant-Man. Um, I'm just, I'm just, or, or, or the wasp. I was excited that they're, that they found a way to get the wasp in there. Um, so yeah. Um, and I guess now that I'm thinking about it, I think I do. I disagree with you more than I let on because that that main problem about the characters, I totally agree with. I just, yeah. it wasn't. It was almost like there were no demerits for me in the characters. There were just no pluses. You know what I mean? Okay. Uh, it, it, so it's it, just neutral. And yeah, and it wasn't the the lack of define the lack of definition in the characters wasn't at no point did it detract from the fun that I was having with all the other stuff that was happening mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, but I do disagree with you. I think the, um, uh, the shifts in tone that you decried, I think I, I think worked better than, than you did. And, um, one thing that you hit on both on the movie journal and on out now was, um, the idea of Scott Lang being, like not being able to read social clues as a uh, social cues as a, as a source of a joke, but it's really just that one thing. And to me, that's, but it's it was, not enough of a pattern. It's just like, Oh, he's just in the moment and like forgotten not to talk. It's just a one time thing. And it ends with a, such a great Paul Rudd thing where he holds up his hands. He's like, 
I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna go make some tea and like points with full fingers at the kitchen. I think that's, that's very the thing funny. Is like, and honestly, like even that, which I, it is funny, obviously, but yeah. like even that, it just doesn't seem. I don't buy that the character would do that because I don't know why he would do that. Like it just again, the character is so amorphous and vague to me that I don't I I can imagine Tony Stark doing that. Okay, because I know who Tony Stark is and I know he can be silly. Scott right, no. Lang is a, a very capable, what is it, mechanical engineer or whatever it is. Like, He's got a master's in something or other. Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> some more shit, you know. Yeah. Um, like, he can do that. He's a loving father. He's a very capable thief. And he has a kind of glib attitude. Like, the character very much veers towards Tony Stark, but they can't let him be that because they already have one. And so they try to, I think they wind up just keeping the character, like, just know. affable. I, I I don't agree that he's that, that much like Tony Stark because he's he's not like I don't think he has the ego of Tony Stark. I feel no. like he's more like um sort of a bit almost like nonplussed that he's found found himself in this situation, but is like over the course of the movie growing into it. Like yeah, I love that he has the again, I hopefully we're still in spoiler territory. I think so, yeah. Um but I like he fights the Falcon and then he has that line about like, uh, they're talking about all the, like the job or the heist or whatever. And he's yeah. like, how about the fact that I fought an Avenger and didn't die? Like, I, I like that. That is when the character is at his strongest from a writing standpoint is when he is just, and I think that's the best way to phrase it is that when he is just looking around, like, how did I, how did I get here? <laughs> like, it's just, and I feel like they don't play that quite enough. Um, and I know they play it, they play it plenty, but I feel like it's just, you can use that reaction to reveal things about the character, but I feel like they don't take advantage of that. They, they use it for humor, mm-hmm. which is fine, but I feel like you can have somebody who's just like, this is so much, I, you look at the, you know, movies like the Lord of the Rings or, or any, any, or even somebody like Luke Skywalker, like anytime somebody has been brought very much out of their comfort zone and they find themselves in the middle of something weird. Um, you can use that to comment on what they thought the world was before, what they think it is now and how they now realize they fit into it. Mm-hmm. And the excitement of that, the fear of that, like you can use that to, to, I think deepen the character. And I feel like they don't. And I feel like that's, and it's not Paul Rudd's fault. Mm-hmm. I think he could have played whatever character was written, but I think they just, I think they were so committed to the humor, which I don't, again, I don't have a problem with, but if you're sacrificing in my case, an investment in the character, I feel like that's the problem. I'm talking more about uh, the, about the film than you are. I'm sorry. Uh, no, that, that's fine. I, I like, that's why I like when you've both seen some of these. Um, yeah, I guess I disagree that they're sacrificing anything. I just yeah. think there's, there, uh, there's not enough definition but it didn't bother me. But I'll say this. I, ta- I ran into um, a friend of the show, Dan Gavazdan, mm-hmm. and I was talking about how much I liked it. And he liked it. I don't think he liked it as much as I did, but he liked it too. And he brought up something that I think is great. And here's why, because I've always been a little bit, I know everyone loves the first Iron Man, but I've always been a little sour on it because it has a really, I think, really weak third act. Sure. Um, Ant-Man, I think, and this is something Dan pointed out, has... Uh, it, this is what's so great about it is that it's the uh, in in Dan's paraphrasing Dan it's the rare Marvel movie that gets better in the third act and I think because it has these action set pieces that keep building and it keeps raising the stakes and keep getting in a way it keeps getting weirder to the point where it is 
it gets trippy at one point, which yeah. is so cool. I'm on like board that. With, I so didn't yeah. see coming this like psychedelic part of Ant Man. Yeah, and I thought that was awesome. Yeah, and I, and and who would ever think that that would not be in a Thor movie, <laughs> right? But in Ant Man, like I yeah. think uh, moments like that, I think speak to probably quite a bit of Edgar Edgar Wright, but also Peyton Reed's willingness to just steer right into it and be and go where the story is taking him. Like again, like it's, I, I I don't want to speculate too much on what is Edgar Wright and what wasn't. Yeah. The only thing that really sticks out to me is that there's a, I feel like maybe you talked about it. Maybe we talked about it off mic. There's a, there's a, a gag using a cure song, a song by the cure. Okay. That, do you remember that? There's a, it's plain song by the cure, but it's, I don't, I don't want to, I guess we're in spoiler territory. So, um, they're trapped inside a briefcase. The Ant-Man and Yellow Jacket are both small. Yes. And Yellow Jacket says, I'm going to disintegrate you. And the iPhone, Siri or whatever, says, uh, playing Disintegration by The Cure. And it starts playing Plain Song off the album Disintegration. <laughs> and they're fighting in a briefcase that's tumbling out of a helicopter yeah. while The Cure is blasting because it's from an iPhone and they're tiny. Yeah. Um, and I feel like the way Peyton Reed staged it, it was like a sort of, it was a gag. It was like, yeah. oh, it starts playing the cure, and that's funny. I feel like if Edgar Wright had his hands on that, he would have done more with the use of this pop song because that yeah. seems so more so much more up his alley. Other than that, I don't really want to speculate too much on the Edgar Wright yeah. thing. I do genuinely feel like, based on the way you and I have talked about Edgar Wright as using editing mm-hmm. to to create punchlines, both sequences where Michael Pena is telling the story right. of how he arrived at a certain place and the way that's structured seems very Edgar Wright. I, I, yeah. Uh, but a lot of the other comedy seems Peyton Reed to me. I think people uh, underestimate Peyton Reed's input because this is a guy who has a comedy background, directed episodes of yeah. the upright citizens Grade show. Yeah. Like he's, a, he's a and, comedy guy and down with love is only awesome wrong. Like I, I, that yeah. buys a lot of, a lot of credit with me. And then before we move on, I want to point out the one thing, of course it's a Michael Pena thing that made me laugh the hardest. And I know you liked the back it up, back it up thing, which is funny. Yeah. Um, I like the commitment to it. He says it like eight times. Yeah. The thing that's funniest to me that I will not to people. I, I feel like I should, this is just for people who have seen the movie because mm-hmm. I, there's no way I could do it justice. But when he's, undercover as the security guard mm-hmm. and he goes in and he stands next to the other guard and very obviously shows him his badge. Like, <laughs> like I'm supposed to be here. I'm a yeah. security guard. I left so hard. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I thought it was, uh, it was maybe the most fun Marvel movie since, Iron Man to me. And I, and I liked the ending better. So maybe I liked it more than Iron Man. I don't know. It does have a really solid ending. Like it's just, uh, which is maybe for me hampered a little bit by the lack of, uh, strong villain. Corey Stoll does what he can. And although I do love the design of the yellow jacket suit. It's cool. Love yeah. it. Um, I'd, I'd still be intrigued to know what you think of guardians of the galaxy. Okay. Um, someday, someday, just as a as a James Gunn fan, and I think this feels more like that. Okay. Um, but anyway, yeah, we can move on. All right. What's what's uh, what's first for you? I saw a film that is notably not fun. Okay. And that is Henry Hobson's Maggie. Oh, starring Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger and Abigail Breslin. That's correct. Um, and Jolie Richardson in oh, in the best part of the film. Like she's great. Um. The fi- okay, so here's what I'll say, and I'm sure other people have said it as well. I'm very much late to the Maggie thing. Um, 
if I had told you years ago, hey, Arnold Schwarzenegger's going to be in a zombie movie, you would not, the first word you wouldn't think of was contemplative. Right, yeah. Um, and, uh, and that's what the I, film I'd, I'd be is. picturing an end of days sort of thing. Sure. Oh, I'd be picturing Commando, except just for zombies. <laughs> okay. uh, and in both cases, he has to try to, you know, uh, help his daughter. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a very quiet film. It feels almost like just... It feels like a one, a walking dead one shot as far as tone. Okay. And as far as just, it's just these characters, uh, Abigail Breslin, she's been bitten by a zombie, uh, and she's now back living with her father and his wife. Her mother has died. Um, and it's a matter of time before she becomes a zombie. Everybody knows it. It's a very, it's a standard, it's a regular part of life. And when, when it gets too far advanced, they will take, the the infected or whatever you want to call it to quarantine and i've heard and everyone hears that uh, quarantine is this hellish horrible place and so she doesn't want to go um and arnold schwarzenegger is trying to figure out like emotionally like how he's going to be able to let his daughter go and stuff like that so there's some interesting stuff going on uh and i think i kind of like the way it's shot i like its use of color uh it really mutes things schwarzenegger does a very good job I think probably most notably because his character doesn't talk much. And I think he's old enough now that he, and I think he's an experienced enough actor that there, you know, he, his facial expressions and just when the camera lingers on his face, like, you know, there's, it's pretty craggy right now. And at this point in his life. And, and so he, he does a pretty good job there. Abigail Breslin, I think does a very good job. Um, but by and large, I think it's one of those things, um, I don't, for the life of me, I don't remember how long ago I said it on the show. It's been many years now, but I remember, um, I was reading a few reviews that talked about, it may, it may have been when the walking dead started out. I think that's what it was. And a lot of TV critics were talking about the walking dead and real and talking about like, Oh, you know, this is, this is exploring that this, that the threat maybe isn't from isn't it's from zombies, but it's also from other people. Like that's it's like, are you shitting me? Night of the Living Dead was nineteen sixty eight. That's, that's what, what that's, that's what, what, zombie that's what zombie movies have been about every single about. time. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess it didn't make its way to TV. Have you not watched any movies? Right. But anyway, um, and so I and in the same way, I feel like Maggie. While I do like its tone, I like its pacing. There are certain scenes that I like a great deal. Uh, most notably, when Maggie is going in to see the family doctor, and he's just you know, and the way that he's not reacting to the horrible things that we're seeing on, on her body now as it's starting to transform, um, it's very that does such a great job in just world building that he's not grossed out Mm -hmm. that he's not panicky. And it's revealed that he is the father of like her best friend. So he's, he's seen this uh, Abigail Breslin since she was a little girl and he has an emotional reaction to it. But right now he's a doctor and that's what, that's how he needs to react. That seems really good. Um, but by and large, I feel like the film thinks it's, it thinks it's, it's a lot deeper than it actually is, or rather it is deep, but it, this, this material has been done before. Okay. And I feel like it doesn't really bring anything new to it. And while Schwarzenegger does a good job, yeah, isn't there something to be said just for the, the interest level 
the intrigue of like, absolutely him being in that movie. I, I very much respect him for taking the part because there's nothing about that part that's that is says it his Copland. I did have that thought, but even that has there's an action element to it at, right. at the end. This has none of that, you know. And I'll say that he does a good job, and I and I applaud him for taking the part. Um, I wonder if any I number of actors how it came to him though. Well, he's you know he's a producer on it, and so right. um, I don't know how it fell in his lap. But I remember at a screening of Aliens with a Q and A with John, uh, with uh, James Cameron afterwards. Mm-hmm. He talked about True Lies and yeah. how that was something because that's True Lies is a remake of a French film. Oh, I didn't know that. And it was something that Arnold Schwarzenegger had seen the French film and came to James Cameron and said, I think I'd be really good for this part. And James Cameron said, if Arnold Schwarzenegger is saying that to me, I guess I'd better pay attention because <laughs> yeah. that's not going to happen very often. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's I don't know how he uh, ran across this. It's it is, I believe, a first uh, feature script by the by the writer and i i can tell um it's just like there's some clunky stuff in there um but uh so that's the thing like i again i don't want to speak ill of arnold schwarzenegger he does way better than i think anybody would have predicted but it's not merely we've talked about this before that like oh could somebody else have played that part and it's not merely that someone else could have played the part. It's that a more seasoned character actor could have played it and probably done more with it. Um, so it's not a bad movie. I liked it a fair amount. Um, and I, I think I respect it more than I actually enjoy it. Um, but uh, I was definitely hoping for more. All right. Um, I saw a movie that I know you're dying to see. And yeah. having seen it, I can't wait for you to see it so we can mm-hmm. talk about it further. Uh, it's called Best of Enemies. Yeah. Um, it's directed by um, Robert Gordon and Morgan Neville, who did uh, 20 Feet from Stardom, which I didn't oh, okay, see, yeah. but I think won, won an Oscar, Oscar, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, that was when actually I was... Let me vent. I might have talked about this in the show before. Oh, good. I had a screening for 20, 20 Feet from Stardom. Okay. It was at a screening where I'd never been before. That was at, um, I think the address, if I remember correctly, was 130 South Doheny. Okay. Now, because the streets and addresses in Los Angeles are so fucked. Okay, yes. There are two 130 South Doheny's. Okay? Yeah. And they're blocks from each other. It doesn't make sense, but it's because Los Angeles wraps around Beverly Hills. Yeah. So I think this was at South Doheny, Beverly Hills, or it was at Los It was at one of them, and I went to the other one and just didn't make it to the movie in time. But it's the way I love Los Angeles. I love living here. I've adopted it as my, uh, my, my home base. Mm-hmm. I love everything about it except for the streets. It doesn't make sense. There's so many things that don't make sense about like, why, how do you not realize it's going to be confusing when you've got Washington Boulevard and then Washington place like sticks off of that and Washington, yeah. you know, there's like, if you tell someone, to go from, you know, the, the ocean to down to Santa Monica and make a ride on Beverly. Mm-hmm. You have to tell them not Beverly drive. You're going to pass Beverly drive, right? You want to make a ride on Beverly Boulevard yes. or the other way around. There's so much shit like that. That is confusing. Yeah. Th- that like, it just seems like it was all like lumped together in ways that don't, don't make sense. Well, and like the Beverly drive and Beverly Boulevard, you almost want to go like back to the city fathers or whatever and say like, do you realize how many words are in the English language? <laughs> right. Yeah. You can use another word. Yeah. It's no problem at all. So this is something that is 
two or three years old and still bugs me, but I missed my 20 feet from stardom screening because I'm there sorry. are two 130 South Doheny's within blocks of each other. Mm-hmm. It so doesn't make sense. Like if it were North and South and I accidentally went, went to North, which I know you've done. I've done. <laughs> that's why you didn't see the Aqua Teen Hunger Force that's, movie with me. That's correct. Um, you, you went to a very bad part of town yeah. <laughs> on South Vermont. Um, oh. uh, anyway, um, that's why I didn't see 20 from stardom, but now I can't wait. To, I want to see it even more mm-hmm. because best of enemies is so good. Mm-hmm. It's so good. It's a brisk 84 minutes long or whatever. Nice. Um, and for those who don't know what it's about during the 1968, uh, conventions, what do you call them? Presidential conventions? Yeah, yeah. Is that what they're called? Well, um, I feel like that's not the right word. There's the Republican National Convention, the, Democrat. The, okay. yeah, yeah. So the two national conventions. ABC was a third place network, and as one of the uh, talking heads, I want to say it's Dick Cavett, one of the talking heads says the only reason ABC was third is because there wasn't a fourth place back then. Yeah. Um, they were, it was like NBC and CBS at the top, and then ABC was like struggling. Um, Frank Rich, one of the talking heads, jokes that, uh, or says that it was a common joke at the time in the late 60s to say, the way to end the Vietnam war would be to put it on a, uh, put it on ABC and it would be canceled in 13 weeks. <laughs> um, uh, so ABC couldn't afford the like gavel to gavel coverage that NBC and mm-hmm. CBS were doing for these conventions. So their take on it was instead of doing just the speeches and all that stuff, they would have a representative from each of the two sides, I guess, yeah. debate the issues. And they, ju- they picked, um, uh, William F. Buckley Jr. to represent the right. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but the way that it seems to unfold in the documentary is that they picked Gore Vidal to represent the left, specifically because William F. Buckley said he didn't want to debate Gore Vidal. That's probably right. Um, uh, so it was over the, you know, five nights at each convention, 10 nights total, they just had like a half hour each night of just yeah. sitting in chairs and debating. Yeah. And, um, it's so fantastically entertaining to watch. I mean, this movie, I, I, it has all sorts of other background of what was going on at the time. And, and obviously the, you know, riots and stuff at the, mm-hmm. in the Chicago convention, the democratic convention, everyone knows about that. And, and, you know, um, a lot about what, uh, how these things sort of affected both of their careers, um, going on because they like best of enemies, the title maybe suggests that, Oh, maybe off screen. They were actually, they actually got along. No, no. they, like that to, to the bitter end, even like after William F. Buckley Jr. Died, Gore Vidal was still like, still hated him. Yeah, <laughs> it was, uh, uh but it, other than one time when William F. William F. Buckley Jr. Um, blew up, which I think, I think it's in the ninth of the 10 debates, if I remember correctly, that he lost his temper. Other yeah, than I, can, that, I can quote specifically what he says. I've, 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 I've seen these debates many times. You've uh, seen all I'm, of them. Maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. And that clip, I know like, it always makes me cringe and I feel, I almost feel bad for Buckley because oh, I know will if you he, watch the movie too, because I know that he's like, he's angry at himself for in as, as he got older, he's like, Oh, why did that happen? Yeah. You know? And you will feel bad for him yeah. when you watch the movie. So that's the thing. I, I, I can't wait for you to see it because, yeah. um, but never has a it, threat seemed so classy. <laughs> it's like, I'll punch you right in the <laughs> goddamn I'll face. You in your goddamn I'll sock face. you in your goddamn and face s- and you'll stay plastered. Yeah. <laughs> um, but of course he says something else before that, which is a little less, uh, yeah, um, I, I consider that, but, um, very much a part of the time. I, it's I, it's I still bad. Obviously. You know, I, I don't think, I mean, I don't, I, 
I don't want to dismiss it as saying it's a part of, okay, I, well, we can say, cause you can find it. It's in the trailer. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he calls Corvidella queer. Yeah. And I don't want to dismiss it as a really bad time. word at the time. Yeah. Because he didn't dismiss it as that. He never, right. He never felt okay with the fact that he said that, like yeah. it, that's one thing the movie goes into is that like, that was something that he was upset about and didn't want to talk about for the rest of his life. He did. He wrote, uh, you know, some things for Esquire about it, but mm-hmm. he never like, defended the way that like Donald Trump says that Mexicans are rapists and then def- then doubles down on it. Yeah. Like William F. Buckley Jr. Felt terrible for having lost his temper and, and yeah. said that. So I don't want to write it off as being a product of the time. Um, but, uh, it's a, it's such a terrific movie. It's so funny because they're funny. And yeah. uh, I'm so glad I stayed for the Q and a, cause I found out some really interesting, um, things such as you'll notice all of the debates that they show, of the 10 are in color, except for that one, except Mm. the one where he loses his temper. And there's a bit of a conspiracy theory that William F. Buckley Jr. Um, got ABC to destroy the tapes of that night. Mm. And it was only because I think it was Vanderbilt university that Morgan Neville, uh, said was running like recording everything for posterity. That's where he found when they went to collect the footage for the, for the documentary, they went to the ABC archives and only had nine of the 10 debates. They found yeah. this one at, um, at Vanderbilt. And there's no, and like, there's no proof that William F. Buckley is junior is the one who asked to be destroyed. But that, that is the conspiracy theory that he said has come up about, about that night. I mean, I know that. he was a big personality. I know he had a certain degree of clout, but I don't, I feel like he's, he wasn't that powerful. Yeah. I don't know. But, um, or, you know, maybe somebody at ABC said like, we don't want, sure. We don't want that, you know, it could have nothing that. to do with him. But, um, uh, yeah, that was good. The other thing that was interesting about the debate is someone asked about like, why, like I think this person's question was, it feels like what you showed of the debates was only 10% issues in 90% ad hominem attacks. And the director said, well, I've done the math. It's actually about 25% issues and 75% ad hominem attacks. But the actual debates themselves are about 35 65 so we didn't yeah. change it that much they spent more time insulting each other yeah. than actually debating the issues which makes for such a delightful movie which is something that always bothered me about those debates is that like i so i i like what well, being a conservative of course you're gonna run across william f buckley it's just a matter of time uh i thought it was remarkably eloquent i thought well, why on, can't on, we have people like that now well hang on now uh i thought on his show firing line mm-hmm he would regularly have people on that he didn't agree with and he would be very like he would not uh be antagonistic to them like no yeah they had, show clips from firing line in the movie too yeah and it's and it's like and i respect that a great deal and um but at the same time i think he was a guy who i think he was a guy who had more style than substance he had plenty of substance but i think he i think he his speaking style got him further than it would if he spoke like you or me. But you know what? At this point, we're so desperate for good coverage or good commentary, good punditry. Yeah. I would take that. But then compared to Bill O'Reilly, who is also on the right and has people on that disagree with him. Yeah. And then spends spends more time shouting them down than letting them talk. I would love if, if there were William F. Buckley, honestly on either side. I mean, I think, um, there are, 
some people on the, uh, I mean, I, I, I know you probably disagree with me. I like Rachel Maddow, uh, quite a bit. She is. She's certainly better than some. Uh, yeah. Um, and, but I feel, I mean, she, uh, I feel like, and this is just a matter of style difference between her and William Buckley. I think that Rachel Maddow is more of a, less of an, like eloquent point maker than a, uh, she likes to give people enough rope to hang themselves a, sure, a lot. I think sure. that's a lot of her style. And uh, again, that's still better than um, the people shouting, which is what most of cable news is. And that's something the movie talks about quite well, a bit. And I, th- I think that's the thing is that like you had William F. Buckley who, again, like I have tremendous respect for both him and Gore Vidal, but I think both of them, you have one who's very self-congratulatory, which is Buckley. Then you have one who is notably catty, like Gore Vidal. Uh-huh. Like, it should be noted that before Buckley makes his little threat, he's been called a crypto-Nazi well, many times. But Buckley is the one who introduced Nazism into that, into that debate. <sighs> See, this In, is why I can't wait okay, yeah, yeah. we can talk about it more. But, but it is like, I do agree, yes, I, especially now that comparing people to i don't know if this is the same in 1968 but it's a it's a cheap hack move to compare people to nazis i don't know if it was, I feel the like same. it was probably i think it was probably worse then just because it was still more recent yeah yeah um so i i agree that gorbadal shouldn't have said called him a crypto nazi more than once but buckley did bring up nazism first in, yes. before that but i think it's i i genuinely do think that there is a difference between bringing it up as like in regards to, Hey, here's what this movement will cause mm-hmm. as opposed to you're this. Like it's a very, yeah, I'm not even a hundred percent sure what crypto Nazi means. It's except it sounds awesome. It sounds like yeah. somebody Captain America fought. Uh, um, yeah. Or, you know, it sounds more like a Hellboy type. Thing. <laughs> um, I absolutely picture that, <laughs> that character from Hellboy. Um, um, yeah. And neither one of them was in the right. I, yeah. I think, I mean, obviously queer the, is a bit more of uh, definitely a harsher well, and thing a, because it's more and a threat of violence. Personal. I don't like, right. You yeah. know? Um, yeah, yeah. It's like none of it. So it's one of those things like they're both very eloquent and by, and, and for the most part they, they can, they can, uh, have a, a seemingly civil debate, but I also feel like just like they're half, obviously ABC wanted good television and mission accomplished. Oh, they got it. Yeah. Um, and but it did I, great for them. Yeah, which is... And, and the the movie makes the argument that it was sort of the introduction of punditry as we know it. That's... Uh, that, I could see that. That the idea of a news favoring uh, commentary over coverage yeah. is a phrase that I used in my review, um, sort of was birthed with this. And the idea, like the... Um, the Saturday Night Live, Jane Curtin, Dan Aykroyd, <laughs> yeah. you know, the classic Jane, you ignorant slut oh, line... The movie argues, at least, that sketch never would have happened if it weren't for Buckley and Vidal. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I can't wait to see it. Although knowing that I'm building to that is going to be tough. But I, I, I have mean, a hard time watching that um, that exchange. Yeah, but I know that there's more to it than that. Yeah, there's more to it. I, I think you'll like it because it does. Like, it does take the movie itself takes this point of view of, um, basically wouldn't it be nice if we still had this had, you know, erudite, like, you know, yeah. uh, literary articulate debates. And it, so it doesn't, the movie doesn't like spend much time saying who was right and who was wrong, which apparently, you know, this is another thing I learned in the Q and a, they 
because they've been working on this movie for years. Mm-hmm. They interviewed Gore Vidal for the movie. He's not, that's not in the movie. Because he was the only one. Partially, he said partially, yes, that they, that it would have been unfair, like against their whole thesis to have one of them and not the other, but also because Gore Vidal was a very contentious interview because he didn't like their premise that these were intellectual equals. As far as Gore Vidal Indeed. is concerned, he, I mean, you see a, there's an interview with him, like a stock foot, like archive interview, archive footage of him talking about, uh, you know, bragging that he left the bleeding corpse of William F. Buckley on the floor of the Chicago national convention. Yeah. That's how he sees things is sure. that he won hands down. Um, and so he didn't like the idea that these people were making a movie that suggested that they were equals. So they, apparently they, they interviewed him in 2010. Um, and he told the whole story of like the whole encounter was, it seemed like a, a blast, uh, cause they had like had cocktails afterwards and it would have been fun to just hang out with Gorman no matter what, yeah. but they didn't end up using the interview. And I think that's quite to their credit. The fact that they had this interview with Gorman oh, yeah, and didn't put it in the movie is, uh, speaks to the, the purity of their, will it be in the Blu-ray features? That's the question. I hope so. Cause I want to see um, it. Yeah. It's, and I will say, uh, for those that might be curious, uh, there's, and this wasn't a debate format by any stretch, but, um, in 1979 and 1980, uh, Milton Friedman was on Donahue. And if you want to see like two guys with the utmost respect and affection for one another, uh-huh. but on completely different uh, opposite sides of the aisle, um, have a really good discussion. And one, and sometimes Phil Donahue makes a good point. Sometimes Milton Friedman makes a good point. The two, and there's such respect but they also don't give an inch. You know what I mean? Like they don't say they don't just concede to the other person's point. And it's very, it's, uh, I, I love, I, I, I've gone back and watched that many, many times. And I will say that there are, pl- there are plenty of people on the right that are very eloquent. The problem is that they're very low profile. Like they're, you know, that's the issue is that Bill, Bill O'Reilly is as high profile as you get when it comes to right wing, uh, pundits. Well, um, I would say part of that is that for years now the gop has glorified anti-intellectualism and doesn't right doesn't raise those people to the level uh, of exposure that they deserve because it's not their brand well and what's interesting is that like the people that i think i like the most are the people that have come about since 2010 when with the rise of regardless of what people might say the tea party which is way more purist and one could say uncompromising, um, than the, the actual GOP. And as a result, you don't get some, like, I think that, I think the GOP and and Republicans in general and Democrats, don't get me wrong. I think when you get into Democrat and Republican, as opposed to liberal and conservative, I think you get people who are way more interested in simply furthering their party as opposed to any particular ideal. And I think, with some with people like the Tea Party, regardless of what I might think of some of their rhetoric, I well, think that, they're purer conservative. But at what point does I know we're off the movie now? But at what point does that rhetoric eclipse what they stand for? Because when the Tea Party first, when they were calling themselves teabaggers, um, I don't think they were calling them that. <laughs> I think they were, honestly, if I remember correctly, I, that they didn't. Whoever formed it didn't know that that has a double meaning. And they were calling it that. I think that's okay. true. I could be wrong. But, you know, uh, one of the issues that I feel like a lot of people on the left and right mm-hmm. uh, agree on is the 
disagreement with the bailing out of the banks. Sure. And so when the Tea Party started, I was like, I was interested in that. But it, it very quickly became eclipsed by the rhetoric of the people who were maybe or even, I don't know if they're a vo- just a vocal minority of the Tea Party or if they have actually taken it over. Mm-hmm. But at what point do you just have to say, maybe the sane part of us should just start a new thing? Oh, it's it's always, a, I mean, people have talked about just the 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 divide uh, in the Republican party, primarily between like standard standard, like party Republicans and then people like the tea party. And then of course, because the tea party is, is seen as more fringe and, and it actually is more fringe when you look at just kind of the more mainstream Republicans, uh, it will attract a more fringe people. But, uh, but, but I would because say they're because they're on the right and the, president is black it also attracts racists to and a certain extent i will a say problem i will say for their image. there are as many racists in the tea party as there were anti-semites in the occupy wall street movement you watch those videos it's astounding how many people will speak openly about how well because of course as we all know the jews run the banks <laughs> obvious uh but see I, I don't know maybe maybe it's just the that i'm a victim of the like a lot of Americans selective news sources. I try not to be, but I didn't hear as much of that. Right. And, uh, you got to look for it because (laughs) you're not going to look for it. Then maybe it's not as prevalent. There isn't. Ah, disagree. Disagree. Because the fact is there is a narrative and that is if a liberal is anti-Semitic, they're an exception. Okay. If a conservative is racist, they're the rule. Who's establishing that narrative? Oh, God, help me. The media. Um, <laughs> I don't agree with that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, and I hate to sound uh, like a conspiracy the, the theorist, but by The media isn't large, a thing anymore. Like, as, as one monolith is not a thing at all. If you look at who was running, for example, any debate, unless it was Fox News, you ha- look, at the, look at the questions that they asked, like Republican candidates. Oh, I look don't at the debates. I Republican, them, I Republican or Democrat. I don't I love watch them, them so much. I might watch with Donald Trump though. Oh, just, I hope he doesn't just, make it. I hope he doesn't other. make it. Oh, um, he's going to be in the debates though. He's leaving. He's going to be the center podium. What's fascinating is even, cause I've found some people on Facebook that say like, it's like, I like what, what they'll say is they like his willingness to just say, to just speak his mind. It's kind of the, what people used to say about John McCain. They'll say like, I like that. He says this, I don't know if anybody, even within that, who said, I want him leading my country. Yeah. And so it's just but like, it's like, well, if you don't want that, then just forget the other thing. John McCain spoke his mind. Uh, I talk like he's, like he's dead. He's not dead. But when he was running, spoke his mind. But there is a like consistent worldview. Whereas Donald Trump seems to like have things like that just pop into the front of his mind and come out of his mouth. And then he never thinks about them again. And also like politically, it's not conservative. Only a few years ago, he was like donating heavily to Hillary Clinton, like was friends yeah. with them. And so oh, like, he's jumped back and forth. He's, he's been a Republican, a Democrat, an independent, and then a Democrat and a Republican. Like it's almost I, like, it's I like genu- cloud Atlas, the book where it's like <laughs> gone in and then back yeah. out. I genuinely feel like the only way to describe him is Donald Trump. Like <laughs> he, there's no party there. Um, but anyway, uh, so I feel super shitty saying like the media and stuff like that, but it is interesting to look at the way certain stories are handled. It is interesting because you will, because like if you watch, if you, if you go looking for instances of tea partiers screaming out the N word or having those, you know, disgusting, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's like, 
Yeah, that's terrible. But by like a vast majority of the Tea Partiers that were near that would easily condemn that person, usually in the in the moment. And in the same, I, d- I like, don't disagree with you. I just disagree that there were as me- as that there was as much anti-Semitism oh, as there was racism uh, in I one movement th- as the other. That's what I mean. Is that like I feel like there wasn't much anti-Semitism, and I genuinely think there wasn't that much racism. But because I do think that there is actual narrative being put out there, I think that this I, is well, this I, is indicative of the Tea Party. Look, we all know it. And then like, oh, but don't pay attention to these uh, anti-Semites. They, but who they is don't the media represent- doing this? Hmm. Who is the media? Oh, it's, because look, look at any number of uh, of uh, oh, polit- not Politico. Damn it! No, Politico's. I know you. No, no, no. They're the good ones. No, that's fine. No, I'm not. They did stories about cover- CNN coverage of Tea Party versus. Oh yeah, they love to. I, I, I read the Politico playbook yeah. every day, and one thing they love to do that I adore is just compare headlines on the same story from like New York times and the wall street journal. Yeah, It's fascinating. <laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah. Oh, and don't get me wrong. Like I would say the wall street journal, obviously they're, they lean more, they, they're more right leaning and stuff. I'm just saying that like I, okay. On Facebook and Twitter and amongst the various comedians that we know <laughs> and frankly show business in general, I as a conservative conservative am regularly told to and as a Christian, by the way, am regularly told that I need I am required to question what my leaders are saying. That I need to question everything. Meanwhile, okay, for but I feel like and so I do. Like I try on Facebook to not say, oh, this is how liberals are. Because I recognize that of course they're not. But some of them are. And in that same way, like until recently the Democratic Party was that was the butt of the joke was that they were always questioning each other that they couldn't during the the George W. Bush administration when the GOP was a like unstoppable monolith because they were all in lockstep. Yeah, the whole thing about the Democrats was that they couldn't get together. So I think liberals because they're always trying to mm-hmm. uh, like out authentic each other they're all i think liberals are always questioning their own leadership i i i don't think that's i'm not quite oh i'm not talking about the party i'm talking like if there is one i genuinely feel like whether it be the entertainment industry basically show business and i will incorporate cnn into that okay like whether it be whether it be candy crowley basically taking the side of president obama against mitt romney and then later on after the debate after it's too late saying you know what i think governor romney was correct in the main and she volunteered that nobody nobody forced it like she actually put that out there i don't watch debates so i don't know what you're it's it's fascinating (laughs) like it's in that moment like it, it was about benghazi and stuff and mitt romney said something and then candy crowley responded to him and said well now hang on and she said this and then later said oh you know what i think he was actually right it's like well the debate's over now Hmm. So I guess damage done, you know, it's just like, and I feel like that's that I I genuinely believe that somebody showing their colors and jumping to the defense of somebody that they are more inclined to agree with than not. But do you really think there's more people in the, the media who are on that side than your side? Oh yeah. I don't. Let me put it this way. I think there's more, everyone knows, including me, everyone knows what Fox news is. Uh Everyone knows that people don't know what CNN is. They think CNN is neutral because you've already got an MSNBC being, yeah, throwing off the other side. CNN's, you know, I I don't watch any of them, but 
that is my impressions at seeing him seems to right. be at least more neutral because yeah, I but guess you, but if we're at, talking about narrative, yeah. the narrative is that you got Fox news and MSNBC on the two sides and CNN in the middle. But that look, is the I mean, look at, look at, but uh, I don't watch any of look them. at the way Wolf Blitzer or Don Lemon or any, or anybody I do. There's a guy named John King that I actually like, but anyway, like look at the way they question Republican candidates and Republican politicians, the way that they just, keep at them constantly look at the way john stewart liberals hate don lemon what was that liberals hate don lemon well he doesn't hate them (laughs) (laughs) apparently not look at the way john stewart for example uh, and this is a boy did i not expect but you know what it's i guess it's the nature of the of the movie well we're not in disagreement about john stewart i'm not a fan well the thing and this goes back to a thing that we've i've been talking about discussing on the show which is like the role of comedy when it comes to politics because a person shouldn't be expected to remove their politics from their comedy but i think i think a comedian's role is to transcend their own personal politics and recognize you know for example recently um when president obama was on the daily show and i think it's like his last appearance before john stewart leaves um and the president was just talking about like it's like you know the media they get like he was complaining about the media and which struck me as interesting, but, um, and he was talking about, it's like, ah, the media, they get involved, they get distracted. I've watched the clip in a while, but, um, it was like a week and a half ago. So I don't remember exactly. I don't have it written down, but something like they get distracted by these shiny objects and they just, you know, it's like, and they want to break everything down into sound bites and stuff like that. It's like, if John Stewart was doing his job, he would have said, Oh, you mean like hope and change something easily digestible like that? Like, calling a politician on obvious bullshit, regardless of if you're in his party. But here's what I disagree with you on. Okay. Is that the hope and change things, those are slogans for a campaign. Okay. It's the media's decision whether or not they're going to reduce it to that. It's, 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 it's uh, at that point, Senator Obama's and his team job to, to make it like that. He's not, if the hope and change thing isn't the media's fault. Oh, or I, if they produce, if they, if they, cover it based on that than it is but i don't think that's a good argument what you just said but i think i well now we're back actually to the media but like it seems to me that's the thing is like i genuinely feel like whether okay hope and change that's a campaign thing but one can make the argument what isn't a campaign thing when when he's trying to push for example if you like your health insurance you can keep it Uh he said it a whole bunch of times there's a, a number of supercuts you can find on YouTube. Uh-huh. If you like your health insurance, you can keep it. He boiled everything down to that. He he boiled a number of com- of concerns about Obamacare down to that one soundbite. Well, I lost my health insurance and I liked it, hmm. and a lot of people did. If they if they paid for their own insurance, as I, I didn't did. lose mine, but I did have to pay more. Okay, yeah. So I'm not I just. I think. Yeah, but you can't be anecdotal. I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think I'm not anecdotal. There are 15 million other people that did. Um, <laughs> well, that's still a pretty small portion of the population. Sure, it is. But so it's you also have to look at if it did more more good than harm. I don't know that I've done the research, but I'm not ready to condemn the Affordable Care Act. Except for as a lefty, I'm ready to condemn it for not going far enough. I'm quick to do that. Sure. But uh, well, and actually, and and oddly enough, the the specifics of the uh, of the Affordable Care Act aren't actually an issue. Even if I didn't lose my health insurance, um, the condensing of everything to uh, of like, oh, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of stuff coming at me. 
I'll condense it to the, my response to this one thing. And I understand that politics in general is about condensing and, and answering the question that you think that you want somebody to ask and all that kind of thing. So I recognize that. But there's any number of things that have been said of, of condensing and making a very easy soundbite in the Obama administration, which I think has excelled at communication and being and and I'd say a certain degree of non-complex communication. Don't get me wrong. Bush administration was less complex, like overly simple. But, you know, and so I feel like John Stewart could have said, well, what about this? What about that? Like, you know, you you regularly deal in sound bites and you're you're con- you're well, look, condemning it, the media for doing what if, you as a politician. Will if you're do. taking an anti John Stewart stance, you're preaching to the choir here because sure. I'm not a fan. But he, what's what's fascinating to me is that he is often put up there as like the most trustworthy guy, which I will say because he wears his politics on his sleeve. I do trust him because I at least know where he's coming from right. and he doesn't put himself out there as neutral, which I have a certain degree of respect for. Um, but it's it goes this it goes this thing of like and I try I really am trying to think like am I being paranoid am I am I buying into this like I'm required to ask that that if I genuinely feel like you know if I feel like Hollywood or or like stand up comedians or just or and and well we've been uh, talking and we have to do it now okay about. Uh, or it was Scott and I's idea for him to be on to talk about sure. is Hollywood more conservative or more liberal. Yeah. I can't wait to have him on and talk about that. I think they are liberals who are trying to pander to conservatives. That's my opinion. Uh, I think I probably agree with you, yeah. but in the end, does that make them more liberal and more conservative? What, mm. what has more of an impact? Cause this is something that, it's not who they are. It's what they do that defines them. Batman. What, yeah. But what do their campaign donations or the messages they're putting out in their movies have more of an impact on the populace? Cause you and I have disagreed about just the power of just, I'm trying to think what the word is that we've used before, because you, you talked about, um, when, uh, uh, you know, uh, before, you know, the Supreme court and before the gay marriage became what it was just mm-hmm. the fact of, Barack Obama saying that he supported gay marriage. You were saying that that doesn't cost him anything to do that. You know? Especially and, because and, they had already sort of floated it with the gaffe of, uh, of Joe Biden saying it a week and a half before. Um, right. Yeah. But uh, to me, I think there's so much power in just that. Uh, and I still can't think what is the word that I'm looking for? Um, anyway, just, I mean, there's a rhetoric to it, but I feel like that cheapens it a little bit. I know what you mean. Like there's a, yeah, there is a word for it. Yeah, and it's late, and we've already done an entire two-hour episode before this, so yeah. uh, uh, we're running out of steam a little bit. But I think there is a oh, lot sure. of power to just what is said, sure. Even if it isn't, even if it isn't attached to a le- legislation or uh, any specific risk, just saying things. So again, we should save this for the episode we're going to do with Scott. But if if someone thinks like a liberal but acts like a conservative does uh which one has more effect i guess well and i think that if you think like a liberal and you are a liberal and you feel very passionately about that it doesn't matter how conservative you you act your liberalism will will leak into it and you will for example like if you look at how if there's a conservative character and he's overtly conservative not just like some farmer or something like that um (laughs) you know (laughs) you know what i mean like Uh like just 
sort of a nondescript thing that, it, and this person would likely lean us uh, right. You know, farmers are conservative like because of subsidies, right? Absolutely, they love them. Yeah, um, they, they probably do. Probably, yeah. Ah. Um, oh. You gotta watch that sixth and seventh season of West Wing. Okay, I think you'd love it someday. Anyway, um, after I get around to watching Mad Max Fury Road and Guardians of the Galaxy, fair enough. You know what, Guardians, you put it on the back burner okay. compared <laughs> to all of those. Um, but anyway, uh, question. Oh yeah, so like if a character is certainly, I think, in my opinion, if a character is Christian, they will be seen negatively, almost invariably, and. If a person is seen it like if a person is a, if a character is Republican or conservative, he will not be seen positively at all. I guess uh, I think with the Republican thing, I feel like you're probably more right with the Christian thing. I don't know that I agree, but I well, can't think. Of, I mean, this is all just coming from gut for both of us. We don't have well, and this a list goes, of statistics, and this is completely analytical on your part. It's a story that you told me about prisoners that when we, when you first but see, that because I mean, that was because my wife is not Christian. And, and she, so and it, was, no, but um, it was, no, it was just foreign to her as a Jewish person, not because she hates Christians. Yeah, no, no. But uh, what I mean is that like, I think she's correct. I think that it is framed that like a character saying the Lord's prayer and then shooting an animal. And then, shoot, well, certainly, yeah. Um, is, I don't know, I feel like if you see a priest collar on somebody, you're immediately going to feel like, okay, that pro- that person is probably a hypocrite. Um, if a person I is, feel that way. if a person in a, in a film or a TV show is, is uh, open about how Christian they are, um, then they're probably going to be seen judging somebody or they're going to be seen going against their morals, which the film or TV show will see as uh, a triumph for us and against that person. And I wish I could think of actual examples, but the, like movies like Saved and and which are very specifically about this kind of thing. But I don't know. It's uh, it's movies like uh, The Mist, which I enjoy. I didn't see. You didn't see The Mist? Never saw The Mist. I think you'd like it. Okay. I anyway, the book sorry. Or the novella. Oh, is that good? Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I, I think you would like the movie. Uh, um. All right. Well, what did you see next? Uh, we can't go all night. Did you have more to say? And here, and you know what? Here's the thing that gets me. The listeners are going to be 100% on your side. <laughs> like that bothers me. I don't know if that's true. Actually, I do know because we did a survey, but that was years ago. That was years ago. Uh, Maybe it, was years ago then, it wasn't a hundred percent. It wasn't. Okay. All right. Sorry. There'll be, I'm going to say 85% on your side. Okay. I was going to go with 92. So you're uh, a oh. more optimistic. <laughs> oh yeah. Look at me. <laughs> um, and that's, and that, I think that's a thing that, uh, that bothers me. Is it like, I feel passionately about my politics. I feel passionately about my, my ideals. I don't have them to hurt people. Or I don't have them then why, against people. And, and yet, I don't want to make you a representative of your entire, uh, way of thinking. You know what? I think, you know what? I think I'm, I think I can do it. Why is, why is appreciation of art seen as a more liberal trait? And why does it attract more liberals? Well, and we and we we dealt with this a little bit when we had Josh Long on to yeah, talk about yeah. conservative we did a lot. conservatism yeah. and criticism. And uh, and I'm honestly I don't know. I think because it is it's seen, because of this anti intellectualism the thing they've I been pushing. I think it is about action. Thirty five years or so. I think it's about action and being proactive. 
and this is, and I say this as somebody who loves art and this is what I'm pursuing in my, in my life. But I genuinely feel like there is Michael Moore. I remember he, he said that he's working on a new movie. Oh, thank God. Anyway. Um, and I'm sure it'll be fine. He periscoped about it yesterday, I think. Oh, good God. Can you imagine anything more insufferable? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I remember in, in his show, The Awful Truth, um, he, he described liberals versus conservatives in regards to like, for example, um, hey, where are we going to go to eat? Uh-huh. And liberals will sit around and be like, well, what about this? We could, oh, well, what is the menu? We could, and then a conservative will be like, get in the SUV. We're going to Sears. Uh, sorry, Sizzler. We're going to Sizzler. Sizzler. Okay. And it's just, I remember thinking that's funny, but I think it's kind of true. Now he, I think wouldn't, the way he talked about it, he seemed to appreciate the forthright, just let's just get uh-huh. shit done. And I think that there is a, there is a, an attitude of, and I think you found it a lot in the Bush administration, whether you, whether a person likes it or not, is just like, we can't just sit around thinking and try and just like parsing everything out when, when something needs to be done. So let's just do something and we'll, you know, um, it's sort of like, uh, in, um, what do you call it? Zero dark 30, a movie that I love. Um, when you, uh, you have Jessica Chastain's character. She's talking to somebody who is a representative of the Obama administration. She's like, we need to go ahead with this. And he's like, well, the president is very reluctant to do this. And undoubtedly, of course, then that's, I don't know if that exchange ever took place. That's not the issue. Um, and I'm not using it as a way to condemn Obama, but I feel like the, why would you condemn him? They ultimately did it and they totally killed that guy. Yeah. They did. <laughs> They got him. I can imagine. Killed him the, I can imagine you in the theater when they shoot Bin Laden, and you're like, "Oh, they totally killed that guy." <laughs> um, but anyway, and so I feel like there is uh, an attitude, positive or negative, in the in the right wing, which is like, shit needs to be done at some point. A business needs to be started, and decisions need to be made, and if we just sit around analyzing everything constantly, then we'll never make that decision. The concept of, of thinking too much, which I can understand, you know, being honestly being married to a business owner, not to imply that, that liberals don't start businesses, but, um, being I, don't, mar- I don't own a business. Well, neither do I, but you know what? We own battleship retention. That's right. Um, so the, we actually we, don't, we own the domain. That's right. <laughs> And that thing is worth a cool few thousand dollars. (laughs) Um, So uh, eight years of work anyway. um, But yeah, being married to a a business owner, like I, Jen has uh, been in that position where it's just like, she doesn't know if she should take on a certain client based on the, the request that they've made. But it's just like, well, time is of the essence and a decision needs to be made. We could be sitting and we could sit and weigh the pros and cons, but this person is going to go with someone else if Jen doesn't just but make a decision. Don't those external deadlines apply to the government, whether they're liberals or conservatives? Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Some things can be perpetually kicked back. Uh, you know, certain to go back to, for example, Obamacare again, whether you think this is a positive or negative, like deadlines are constantly pushed back. Like, you know, uh, or not maybe deadlines isn't the word, but like there are certain cutoff points, like at the, like on this day of this year, the got to get the website up and running. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's like, okay, well, uh, 
this is when, man, I can't think of an example, but I remember last November it was, uh, this next aspect of, um, of Obamacare will be implemented, but then they pushed it back. Uh, just okay. not necessarily arbitrarily, but just because like, Oh, now's not actually a good time for it. And so I think, I think in the, in the government, unless it's foreign policy, which I think like, you know, you got to make right quick decisions okay. as much as you can. But I feel like when it comes to like domestic policy, you can, you can, you can kick that can down the road quite a bit to the extent that kicking the can down the road has become a political expression. Um, anyway. and that's why Republicans don't like art. Well, just that like, to like and appreciate art means that you're sitting and thinking and talking and that's it. Okay. And that, and that when you, when you come to the conclusion, uh, you know, when you do what we do, which is talk in circles without coming to a, con- a conclusion, which you and I view as a successful episode yep. that, it, that couldn't be more fun, you know, um, they would view as potentially a waste of time because they need something again. I feel bad speaking on behalf of all conservatives because you know that's ridiculous. But for um, most of our listeners, you're literally the only one that they know. Fair enough. <laughs> Maybe uh, examine yourselves if that's the case. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, and so uh, and I feel bad because I feel like I, I've I've sort of like made myself or conservatives into a martyr. Obviously, obviously, we're not. We're half the country. You can't be a martyr and be half the country. If you're 10% and you're really put upon, okay, fair enough. But I will say that I do think that like the powers that be in, I'll specify Hollywood, whether they mean to or not, I think a person's personal values will always seep into um, their work. Let's save that for the conversation with Scott, which we have to have soon now. Yeah, I guess this. What's the next thing you watched? Damn it. This is so fucking long. This is so much fun. Are you enjoying it? Oh my God. Yes. Good. Good. Do you want to, do you want to take the emails that I'm going to get? <laughs> you better email me too. You jerks. I'll, I'll forward them on to you and you enjoy yourself. I love it. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Can we cut all this out? <laughs> Please. No, I, I can't wait. Oh, let's, let's, you're assuming that people are still listening. Yeah. <laughs> Not a good assumption. Not Let's motor assumption. through the last ones here. So, okay. The last ones. We've each done one, right? No, I've done two. Okay, all right. Next one for me is Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, written Mission. by Christopher McQuarrie. Hold on, I'm writing it down. Mission, colon, impossible, yeah. right. dash. space, dash, space, Rogue Nation. You take out that first space, and I'm, I'm right there with Go it. to imdb.com, see how they display the name of the movie. There's, there is a space between impossible and rogue. Go to anyone who's reviewing the movie. There is a space between space dash space. Yes. Space. That's how you use dashes. I've been telling you this for literally four years, more than four, four and a half years. So much space, but it's not a colon is attached to the previous word. A A dash, unless it's a, you know, connecting a word to making it one word like Ant-Man. Then it connects to both sides. The only time a dash should connect to the first word and not the second. Okay. Right. Is if you're splitting up something as opposed to saying, let's see. um, Let's say, uh, let's say my sentence is be it, be it ant or Spider-Man. 
then ant would be ant dash space. Okay, I see. Or, and then spider dash, but then the dash and spider would be connected to both. Okay. That's the only time the dash should be connected to the first word. In my opinion, I know you feel differently about dashes. We just and talked you about don't politics. Like politics. We just talked about politics for 30 minutes and now your passion really kicks in. Yeah. Punctuation. <laughs> grammar. Yeah. And the fact that you and I have had a four and a half year disagreement about how to use dashes. That's true. Which I, which is fine with me. I'm okay with it. Yeah, it's not so, like I, I haven't like, if I were a dick, I could would have gone in and like corrected all your dashes on the website. I do I have not done that, that because do I know that. we have different points of view. Um, but it is, in my opinion, it is mission colon attached to mission. Right. Then space. Then impossible. Then space dash space rogue nation. That is my opinion of how a dash works. IMDb.com bears me out. Uh, yeah, but you know, I mean, anybody with a pro account can go on and change that. <laughs> I guess you're right. Anyway, so um, <laughs> I don't know if that's actually true. Um, yeah, uh, it's marvelous. I absolutely loved it. I, I don't doubt it, it. It was so much fun, of course. And you love Jack Reacher. And I love Christopher McQuarrie. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, you're three. Uh, well, you haven't seen this one yet, but you're going to be three for three with this guy as far as uh, directorially. Um, yeah, it's just, it's such a, it's, it's gotten me thinking about the Mission Impossible series almost invariably when they announce that there's another one coming out. I react with weariness yeah. and I need to stop because the third one I love. The fourth one is great, and the and the fifth one is like so solid and fun. But does it feel like when they announce another one, you're like, you guys, you have such a good track record. Let's. Do you want them to sort of quit while they're ahead in a way? It could be that, unless like, but they've been doing such a great job. What I mentioned in my review is that like, not since the Alien series has there been a better example of a franchise bringing in a director who, and they put their specific stamp on it. Right. And there's, and there's a a main character and a main actor linking all of these things together. And it just winds up being, but, and each one is similar to the others while being very different at the same time. I, I want to see it and everything, but I have a tough time. Like does Christian McQuarrie actually, is he able to bring his sort of postmodern sense of humor to Rogue Nation? Yes. Okay. Not as much as I would normally like, but okay. what I do like is that he is Christopher McQuarrie in certain ways always reminded me of David Mamet. Uh, not necessarily even in what he writes, although there's a lot of that in, in uh, way of the gun. Um, but the, the, his, uh, his economy, um, I okay, feel like yeah. he, he cuts the shit and gets down to business. How long is rogue nation? It's two ten, and boy, does it not feel like it. Okay. Um, because, because that's the other thing. It's just like, a scene will never last longer than it needs to. Um, he won't spend too much time on the stuff that would be superfluous to this story and this series. But what I like is that once he gets into, and the fourth film is like this as well. Once he gets into a sequence, an action sequence, he will, I remember, uh, people once describing Brian Regan as when he gets a comedy premise, he's going to look at it from every angle. Uh-huh. He will like, he will like work it until there, he will squeeze it until there is no comedy left. Uh-huh. And that is what Christopher McQuarrie does with his action sequences. He will squeeze them. He will like, there's a sequence that takes place during a, an opera in Vienna. And what I like is that everything needs to stay quiet partially because they don't want to alarm anybody or alert anybody to their presence. But also I think they're just like, well, we don't want to interrupt the opera, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) 
but just like, it's like, of course they're going to be backstage. Of course they're going to be in the sound booth. Of course they're going to be in the corridors. Of course they're going to be on the catwalks. They, they're going to like, there's, there's no action or thriller potential that will not be explored. Oh, and I, I, so I love it so much. There's I, yeah, it's, and, and it's, and it's also funny. Like I found myself thinking of Ant-Man a lot because that's ostensibly a heist movie. But I think my issue with it is that it, there needs to be more of an ensemble quality to it. If it's going to have an actual heist qual, uh, uh, element to it. And I think, not that Mission Impossible is necessarily a heist, but it might as well be in many instances. And that is a solid ensemble. Oh, good. And the way they interact with each other feels more genuinely amusing. And I will say, at Alec Baldwin... I didn't know he was in it. Yeah, he's the and person. And, oh, okay. And, just, and he, he, he can play comedic beats that are virtually invisible, and I can't even tell you how he did it. Like he's, he's kind of the requisite like government guy who doesn't like what the IMF is doing. And so he's, pre- he's giving a presentation. He's like the last time, uh, he said, uh, they recently, uh, infiltrated the Kremlin. Here's the Kremlin before. And just, and so he clicks on a, on a thing and there's just a picture of the Kremlin. And then he says, here's the Kremlin after, but it's the way that he says the way he goes, they recently went to the Kremlin. Here's the Kremlin. Like, it's just, there's no pause and mm-hmm. he immediately goes into it and gets a laugh out of it just by just through timing like it's his comedic and like and there's a moment when uh when a character you know because they always have masks and stuff a character is revealed to be uh tom cruise's character ethan hunt and then it like zooms in on alec baldwin and he takes one beat longer than one would t- than one would normally take and then he goes hunt <laughs> it's I can't even begin to tell you how hilarious he is. Oh, I know how hilarious you, Baldwin is. Yeah, and um, you'll love this movie. I think it, you'll enjoy it. It's, I know we had uh, a while ago uh, Amy Nicholson on to talk about Tom Cruise's mm-hmm. career. Um, I, there's so many reasons, like after seeing Going Clear and all this stuff, to like want to not like Tom Cruise. But he's not only is he a great presence. Yeah, and we'll be talking about him later, actually, in a little bit. Um, a very good actor. He has taste and people forget that. But like the fact that he's brought Christian Macquarie along with him starting, I guess Christian Macquarie wrote Valkyrie, which is I guess how they would have first come into contact. I would assume so. And And who knows? Maybe he got him. Maybe he got him. No, no, no. Because Brian Singer worked with him on usual suspects. So yeah, I'm sure Brian Singer got with him on Valkyrie and then Tom Cruise uh, took him under his wing. Yeah. And isn't that how Tom Cruise or Christian Macquarie wrote and directed Jack Reacher yeah. wrote uh, Edge of Tomorrow slash yeah. Lived I Repeat. Yeah. <laughs> and now I, I, I just feel like, I mean, Tom Cruise has made some good movies and some bad movies, but he always wants to make a good movie. And not yeah. I don't just mean a successful, financially successful movie. I feel like Tom Cruise is a guy who really cares about his movies being good. Yeah. And I, I read an article recently that talked about like, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if Tom Cruise got back to like what he did from 89 to 99? And we'll get back to that in a moment. Yeah. But, um, you know, when, like when he was focusing on being an actor and all that kind of thing, it's just like, and I remember, and, and, they just, you know, very much, you know, poo pooed the, the work that he was, that he had done after 99 when he did Magnolia and Eyes Wide Shut. And I understand why he's saying that. And as a film lover who actually appreciates a lot of the acting work that he does, I see where the, where the guy's coming from. But at the same time, it's like, uh, he does some of his, he's done some of his best work in movies that people wouldn't, wouldn't associate with good acting. 
Oh, the, he's in Mission the Impossible opening 3? of Mission Impossible Three yeah. is as emotionally draining as his any uh, anything that I yeah. can think of in, yeah. in Magnolia. In the, entire, in the entirety of Born on the Fourth of July, he can't <laughs> right, yeah. he can't match that intensity. And then also Edge of Tomorrow, like I mean, every emotional beat he sells uh, and whether it be humor or like genuine concern or callousness, like he, he sells it all. He's always a good actor. All right. We got to move on. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. We, we did take too long. That's fine. But yes, uh, uh, I'm sure I I believe that it's going to be great. Um, the next movie I saw, which is great and comes out in a couple weeks, uh, Noah Baumbach's newest film, mistress America. Oh, is, uh, and you're allowed to talk about this? Yeah. Okay. Um, it didn't play to Sundance. So it's, okay. yeah, it's, um, it's hilarious. It's probably the most straightforward comedy. Mm-hmm. I mean, no Obama's movies are always funny, but this is a comedy first and foremost. Okay. Um, and more than that, it's like a rat-a-tat screwball comedy that actually at one, there's one, there's one sequence that at, at a, at a single suburban house in, in Greenwich, Connecticut, a big, like rich suburban house that goes on a really long time and unfolds pretty much in real time where it becomes a farce. Mm-hmm. So not what I expected from, from Noah Baumbach. Um, but it's, it's brilliant. There are one, maybe two times where I feel like it steps on its own emotional beats because it's trying to keep up the comedic ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's maybe the one thing that would knock it from an A to an A minus for okay. me, but it's a fantastic and hilarious film. All right. And it, who's the star of it? Well, um, I don't know the name of, I mean, it's essentially like a, there's two main stars. Greta okay. Gerwig wrote it, right? Uh, like she, or co-wrote it like she did with Francis Ha mm-hmm. and she's a huge, she's the second biggest character. Okay. But the main character is, a um, an 18 year old college freshman at Barnard in New York and she's lonely and not having a good time in New York city. But she finds that that the finds out that the daughter of the guy that her mom is about to get remarried to who's 30, mm-hmm. the, the girl is not the guy she's marrying, um, lives in Manhattan and her daughter's like, why don't you look up Brooke? And then, so it's essentially about their, yeah. their friendship. She's 18, she's 30 and they have a friendship. That sounds fun. Uh, and it's a blast again, like best of enemies under 90 minutes. Nice. Uh, and yeah, because the, at the pace that it goes, you wouldn't want it to keep going. It would be exhausting. Wow. If it kept going. It, would you say it's madcap? Uh, well, I said screwball. I okay, think I'm going to stick enough. with screwball. Fair enough. All right. All right. Last movie for you. Uh, no, I've got two more. Oh, that's right. Sorry. Yeah. I'm going, first, um, so yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll speed through this one though. Um, there's a rewatch, okay. uh, very, uh, still in the mood, still, still buzzing. For Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, uh-huh. I saw that an AMC theater in Burbank was playing Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, which I... Oh, really? D- yes, for $5. Uh, the AMC 16 in Burbank. It was strange. I don't know why they were doing it. I mean, obviously, I knew why, but like, I don't know, I don't know why they were charging so little. Um, but anyway, um, so Jen and I had seen that movie, but we saw it on DVD. Like we didn't see it in the theater and we were, and she enjoyed the yeah, fact well. I'd known about this. Cause I never saw it in the theater either. Oh, it's, Actually, I never saw it at all. I haven't seen it. You haven't seen it at all. Oh boy. Got to see that one. That's what I hear. And, and, uh, much to my surprise, uh, there's a lot of stuff in the fifth one that actually references the fourth one. Like that Kremlin thing I told you about. I did not remember when I saw rogue nation. Oh, this is stuff we actually see in the fourth film. 
So anyway, um, and yeah, uh, I enjoyed it a great deal. I think I like Rogue Nation more, but again, the sense of pacing and fun and just the light, the lightness of uh, Ghost Protocol, directed by Brad Bird, right. um, with the same kind of fluid camera that uh, he would find, you know, in his animated films. Um, it's just I won't spend a lot of time on it because people have been talking about it for four years, but like it's just. I remember that one being particularly just like when I heard about it, like who gives a shit about mission impossible? Come on. <laughs> and then when I, and then I heard it was really good. And then I saw, I was like, I give a shit about it. And then the, then the fifth one was announced and I immediately, I immediately was like, come on, they're not going to do better than the fourth one. This is just going to be it. And then, but then I saw Christopher McQuarrie and I thought, okay, maybe. And so wait, uh, what is your favorite mission impossible film? Is it rogue nation now? It is either the third or the fifth. Okay. It depends. It honestly probably depends on my mood because that third one is pretty heavy. It's fun, but it's pretty heavy sometimes. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I, I'd probably have to rewatch the third one again and let you know. But as of right now, it might be number five. But yeah, so Ghost Pro- Protocol is so happy that we got to see it in the theater. It was a lot of fun. And uh, if you haven't seen it, in your case, um, seek it out. All right. Let's keep up the, uh, Tom Cruise-ness of this uh, All right. podcast. Ugh. I rewatched for the first time in 15 years, I want to say. Probably. Uh, Magnolia. Okay. A film that I had always thought was underrated or overrated. Mm-hmm. Um, in many ways, I was wrong. It's uh, actually a fantastic movie, and I don't okay. know what I was thinking. I, I think I didn't maybe... David, uh, did you not get it? Maybe like, I didn't like get I it. Like I clearly did. Or maybe I was just not okay with the weirdness of it. Okay. Because it's, I mean, there are certain overtly weird things that happen, like the fact that there's a sort of musical number in it, yeah, and the fact that you know toads fall from the sky, yeah. But what's, it also, what's up? But it's also a weird movie. I think something that I had said about it was, and that I also felt about Boogie Nights, which this makes me want to rewatch Boogie Nights too, because I never liked that very much. But I always felt that it was um, a bunch of great scenes that didn't work together as a movie. And I don't know why I thought that because that's not yeah. true at all. The, the, the score of Magnolia ties everything together so yeah. much that it, I don't know why I just thought of it as this mundane domestic drama for so long hmm. when it's more, it's like an opera. Yeah. Um, I, I, basically what I'm trying to say is that when you're 17 or 18, you're probably stupid and wrong. Probably. And now that I'm 32, uh, I am right about Magnolia. It is a very, very good movie. That said, oh, watch out. Let me point out something that I definitely wouldn't have thought of 15 years ago, and maybe not wouldn't have even thought of a few years ago. But I had the same thought when I rewatched Shortcuts recently, which is also an LA sort of ensemble movie. Now, I'm a denizen of the San Fernando Valley, and I'm a denizen of, the, of North Hollywood in particular. Yeah. I don't think you know where I'm going. Uh, I have maybe okay. not. And most of Magnolia appears to take place when you are outside in it. It mm-hmm. does take place seemingly around the Mag- the uh, North Hollywood Studio City area, right? I where I live, Magnolia is a very white movie. Oh, in yes. terms of the cast, yeah. And it did bother me a little bit to to see that kind of representation and lack of rep- really other than the the woman who interviews Tom Cruise is a black woman and she yeah. comes across, uh, uh, as a, as a, as a very strong and interesting character. I feel like I have an idea of her other than her. 
the black characters are mostly like the criminal family that, uh, yeah. that, um, John C. Riley encounters at the beginning. There is the one woman, uh, the adult contestant on the game show. One of uh, the women yeah. is black, but it's, and there's, I mean, again, I live in North Hollywood and there are like no Latinos in the yeah. movie at all. And he's worked with is, Luis Guzman before. Oh, actually. And he, I, I forgot about that. He is one of the contestants. He's on one that. of the contestants. Yeah. That's but right. But it's yes. like, it just seems so strange to me. Yeah. Given my experience of that part of like, I understand. Okay. Maybe if it took place in like, Tarzana, Reseda, sure, right? You know, those are Toluca Lake or even Burbank. Th- yeah, those are wider parts. But like, it really it it is a it's a San Fernando Valley movie, as everyone says. But it really is a North Hollywood movie. That's where uh, that's where most of the location photography actually yeah. seems to be. I mean, and there's, in fact, the big the big intersection, which is not Magnolia, which is not Magnolia, it's Victory, Victory and Laurel, Laurel, yeah, yeah, and then um, the um, the the bar that Donnie is at is on Magnolia. I think is it. It's I believe the Foxfire so, yeah. room, which I I've never so. been to, but I love the exterior of it. Yeah. Um, and I guess I love the interior too, but I only know from the movie. I've never been in that bar. Uh, but it is such a North Hollywood movie. Well, I wonder, and I feel bad speaking in these terms, but like, and it's been a while since I've seen, it. I mean, how many of these characters are affluent? You know, don't get me wrong. Like, there's any number of characters that you could have be black or Latino. Um, but in North Hollywood, like first off, it's not a very wealthy neighborhood in the first place. Um, okay. And I feel like and econo- well, because like the partridges, like the Jason Robards yeah. is rich and Phil uh, Baker Hall is rich. Yeah. And then Tom Cruise is probably rich, right? He's part of that same family. Julianne Moore is a part of that. And then, you know, and I'm trying to think, but you could have you know, like John, John C. Riley. Riley. He could have been. Yeah. And also, I mean, uh, you know, Phyllis Seymour Hoffman's character. I mean, I, I, as much as I'd hate to give up that performance, but like nursing is a, a that that is a profession that yeah, people, there are a lot of people of color in that yes. profession. It did it's, like it's I'd hate tough, to let though, it because that performance is so fucking good. I, I know, I, and I hate to let it affect my enjoyment of the movie because I do think it's a really really uh, good movie, and I I mean it's three hours and eight minutes, and it yeah. flies by. Yeah. somehow um but it did stick out like a sore thumb to me just how white it is well and i think even the uh you know even the 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 new quiz kid whose name escapes me and stanley the, and his father michael bowen mm-hmm. um i mean those characters could have been i yeah, almost al- like almost any of them i mean when you think about it, any of them could have been um but uh yeah and it's it's an odd choice and one that uh like you said i certainly wouldn't have thought about it then yeah. I might not have thought about it until recently. And it's not, it's not a thing that bothers me, but I will say that it's a thing that like living in Los Angeles and having lived in North Hollywood, it doesn't sell the reality of it to me. Yeah. You know, it's not even, it's not even so much being like, you know, a social justice warrior or anything like <laughs> right. that. As you know, I am David. Sure, sure. Um, it's just about like, well, that is not indicative of the world of the Valley and North Hollywood specific. Yeah. But you know, but regardless, uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm glad you like it. What do you think of Tom Cruise in it? He's great. Yeah. Uh, he like, uh, he also, I mean, one thing I always like about, um, Paul Thomas Anderson movies is that they're not comedies, but they're hilarious in many ways. This one isn't as funny as, 
as the master or there'll be blood. I don't think, but Tom Cruise saying twice, I will drop kick that fucking, those fucking dogs. If they come near me is the funniest part of the movie. It's pretty funny. (laughs) Um, yeah. And just, uh, yeah, it makes me want to rewatch it. Cause every time I've seen probably maybe only like three times, maybe four. And every time I watch it, of course, it's the type of movie that, I'll zero in on a, on a different performance. Mm-hmm. Like the first time I saw it, obviously Tom Cruise got a lot of my attention. Um, and then as time goes on, like Philip Seymour Hoffman really emerges as like a really just like such a special, fascinating character. Um, but okay, we can move on. Um, I think I've, I've focused a lot on John C. Riley this time. Yeah. He's somebody that I, and I feel like he's up there with Tom Cruise as far as like, not that his performance is showy by any stretch, but that he, um, because he's sort of narrating in a way. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I feel like he's more forefront. You'd naturally think of him first. Um, whereas Philip Seymour Hoffman, he, because he's surrounded by a histrionic Julianne Moore or a dying Jason Robards or Tom Cruise being insane or Paul of Tompkins or Paul of Tompkins. Yeah. So was it weird seeing Pat? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I remembered, uh, like, I had actually weirdly seen that scene on the TV in a bar hmm. not that long ago. Yeah. So I remembered that I, I knew that Pat Healy was coming up in it, yeah. but uh, A, he looks very young. Yes. And B, the things that he's saying are very, are very unprofessional. <laughs> That's my thought. Yeah, oh, no like, question about that it. That guy has no business being a pharmacist. Yeah, he needs to, to be fired. Like that. Yeah. He needs to be fired. <laughs> um, but yeah. And speaking of which, uh, was it fun seeing, uh, in Ant-Man, seeing uh, Johnny Pemberton? Yeah, that was great. So. <laughs> the, the, not his line, but Paul Rudd's line. Yeah. When he gets called in the office by Neil Hamburger, by yep. the way, uh, Greg Turkington. And he says to whoever else is working, he's like, Sharon, uh, can you take care of this idiot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's again, see a little Tony Stark ask, but uh, but he sells it well. Because he's so cheerful. Yeah. Um, okay, so my last movie. Oh, this, I, don't, I didn't want to end with this. Too bad. Uh, I saw Joe Dante's Burying the X. It's a recent Blu-ray release. And listeners know that you and I, uh, probably even you more than myself, we love Joe Dante. We are big yeah. champions of his work. Yeah. Uh, this film, not that good. Uh, th- you know what? Thematically, it explores some stuff that I like. And I think... Uh, you know, in standard horror movie fashion, not that it is one, but like in standard horror movie fashion, it uses these rather outlandish ideas to explore something that is actually very relevant to people's lives, which is the idea of like community, the, the, the importance of communication in a relationship and not even necessarily standing up for yourself, but like that you owe the other person, you know, they, they deserve to know what you're thinking and feeling. And, uh, anyway, but, uh, but aside from that, um, Joe Dante is allowed to be himself in certain things. When I say allowed, I don't mean like anybody's cracking down on him, but like that script is tough. Like it is not very good. Um, but I think in, in some instances there's a lot of Joe Dante and I think maybe the writer wrote it knowing he was going to do it because like Anton Yelchin's character works in like uh, sort of a hot topic, but if it were more like retro minded, you know, like you know, there are Vincent Price movies showing on TV and stuff, and okay. um, like, do you remember that place, the Alley in Chicago? Did you ever go there? Gosh, I don't. On Clark, 
just north of Belmont. I can picture the, the I never went inside, okay. but uh, but I can picture it. I think it's um, kind of like that. But yeah, and so moments like that, and then certain, uh, not necessarily action moments, but uh, certain like energetic moments have the the Joe Dante quality to it. But but for the most part, it's just a it's it feels. And maybe this was Joe. Maybe this was uh, Dante's uh, intention that it feels so much like an '80s movie. Um, but I, I mean, in, in in a negative way, like the kind that deserves to be forgotten, um, where it's just like, hey, a high concept thing, and it's like, but it winds up. I believe in my review, I said like it's a horror comedy that is neither scary nor funny, and uh, that is uh, unfortunate. All right, on to television. All right. Um, this is weird that it came up so close to our discussion of Magnolia, but I watched an MTV special called white people. <laughs> um, this is in, in real life. These things weren't that close together. Yeah. So I didn't even think about the correlation, um, which was uh, really interesting. Um, it was basically a one hour special of this guy interviewing white, like teenagers and college students about what's it like to be white in America right now. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. It's interesting because it's like, because there's, you know, and there's a lot of talk about like privilege and stuff. And I think because that privilege is there, that's something that's often not examined. And so mm-hmm. it essentially ends up being the same conversation that we have about what's it like to be black or what's it like to be Latino? What's it yeah. like to be native Americans? A big part of this as well. Um, it's, it ends up being the same conversation, but it gets at it in a different way that, um, I actually found really interesting, even though the, the, the guy who hosted it and directed it, I think he's a little bit obtuse sometimes. And he asks very broad questions in a way that sometimes actually ends up by giving people more real estate to work with. He gets more interesting answers by being broad. But then sometimes at one point he says like, there's a discussion about like white people using the word ghetto. It's just like a shorthand for like, rundown or mm-hmm. you know and a, a a black girl being at the table and being very upset by that because that was something that like that's a word that has often been attached to her yeah. throughout her life just because she's black no matter what you know interesting and so that became that was a very interesting conversation but then the host goes <laughs> the most trite thing you can possibly imagine saying he goes it's amazing the power these words have <laughs> right <laughs> so it has some problems, but it still ended up with some really interesting conversations and interesting things that you don't think about. Like I mentioned the native Americans, he goes to a, a reservation, obviously native Americans living on yeah. the reservation, but the teachers at the school are, are all white interesting. and it's, and so he interviews them about them having to sort of like talk about having to confront what being white means in America. Like the things they've never had to think about in their life yeah. are suddenly, uh, uh, a part of uh, their everyday uh, experience. It, it was it was interesting. It, it could have been made with a little more nuance, uh, but you know, it's, was there a, was there a condescending or condemning quality to it on the part of the filmmaker? Like, I feel like it'd be very easy, like when talking to like you know high school, like white high school students, and just asking them, and then like taking joy in like clueless answers they might give. No, not that. There is one thing where uh, of you know a white student saying that she didn't get a she couldn't get a scholarship to college but her friend her non-white friends were able to get scholarships because there are scholarships people of race Mm -hmm. and then 
later it comes back to her. Like, it's not like a gotcha thing in the moment later, like statistics come back to her that, you know, I mean, this is why anecdotal evidence isn't worthwhile in these kind of sure. conversations because the statistics are that white kids are still something like 60% more likely to get, uh, to get scholarships than not white kids. So that sort of has this idea of like making her look bad, but the, yeah, the director has a lot of compassion for her. Okay. Um, so it's, it's not done yeah. in that kind of mocking way. That's good. Cause cause that's the thing, like in that instance, it's sort of like, it's sort of like, aha, you shouldn't feel this way because look at this statistic. It's like, that's fine. I still didn't get one. <laughs> right. Uh, and I'm so, you know, I'm, uh, thanks for making me look bad. <laughs> nice to have the insult with the injury. Right. Um, no, but, and it doesn't, but it do, sounds like, yeah. it sounds like he, <laughs> it's amazing what power these were. It reminds yeah. me of a Simpsons quote where, uh, and I don't even remember the context, but I remember Mo. Who's of course one of our favorite characters. Yeah. Uh, he's looking something and he's like, ah, his clown, his clowning around is putting me at ease. like he was reading the stage directions of his character i loved it um okay so i've been watching hannibal i won't go into a lot of detail because you have not uh you're not caught up i'm Um, so far behind so we have uh we are now into the red dragon story um and i'm liking it i'm liking it a lot um they're doing some really great things all right i'm sure Um, once i get caught up yeah we can talk about it at length. Yeah. Just, I mean, obviously it's, it's repetitive to talk about how visually beautiful, uh, the show is, but you know, we've seen in Manhunter and red dragon, we've seen this material before. So Brian Fuller had his work cut out for him. Cause it's like, he has to try and make this distinct from that. And, uh, and I think he does certainly as will is, uh, walking through, the crime scenes. He, man, he does some great stuff there. I can't wait. And and it makes it feel like, and he makes it feel different than the other depictions of this, but it also feels different than will doing this before because he's been away for years and he hasn't been doing this. And now he has to get back into it and it's tough for him. And the, the visual representation of that I think is fascinating. So I can't wait for you to catch up. I think you, I think I'll be very excited. Hopefully soon. Um, all right. I did oh. have one last thing. Sorry, I oh, forgot. I you said, okay, um, sorry. I uh, I saw on Hulu, to put it on the list. I'll remember. <laughs> um, I saw on Hulu that there were many many episodes of Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Oh, okay. So I've been watching that, and uh, did you watch? I know you did because we talked about it. You watched the Brood Witch. Yeah, yeah, my, and that's my, one that I had seen many times before. Yeah, it's probably my favorite Aqua Teen Hunger yeah. Force episode. I. That one's great. I just, I, I enjoy it a great deal, but I'll say this. If I watch too many episodes in a row, the complete insanity of that show mm-hmm. will start to have an effect on my, on my mood. <laughs> and I'll start to feel like I need stability somewhere in my <laughs> life because this is not providing it. Mm-hmm. But, um, but then the other thing is like having now sat, having now watched the panel at Comic-Con and hearing Dana Snyder mm-hmm. be master shake. Right. Uh, has made this difference to me in watching it because I just like you just picture that's, him because that's him yeah <laughs> that's him he's not doing a voice yeah um so yeah I've been uh, enjoying it quite a bit my favorite episodes Brood, uh, all from the first three seasons okay. maybe from the first two Brood Witch talked yeah. about uh, the Vampire Bus 
Oh yeah, yeah. Which I think also has John Benjamin. Uh, is that? Yeah, I think so. Is that the one with the moth? He's the moth, yeah, that's, right? That's him. Yeah. And then the one I forget the name of the episode, but where there's a onion spider demon named Willie Nelson living in their attic. Yes. Okay. Uh, voiced by Tom Sharplin. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, I enjoy. <laughs> I enjoy any. So far, I've gotten far enough that this character has now shown up for a third time. He's inig- originally called MCP Pants. <laughs> And then he becomes Sirloin. Uh, Wait, does he have to rap about how he wants candy? And yeah. he says, I'm your Hume Cronin, you're my Jessica Tandy, yes. give me candy, yes. something like that? And that's, and that's the one where Carl has like, he's like, he's like I'm going to get that, uh, so I'm like, I'm going to get that song out of my brain with a bullet, <laughs> um, which I love. I think my, maybe my favorite one is from uh, maybe the first season, I don't remember, uh, with uh, Old Drippy. Remember oh, Old right, Drippy, yeah. voiced by Todd Field. Is that right? Director of In the Bedroom. Wow. <laughs> Little children. And of and course, the Mooner Knights, before they ran that into the ground, they really went to that well too many times. Too many times. First couple Mooner Knights I, episodes are fantastic. I still enjoy some of the stuff they do with them, but after a while, it's like, you know, these characters aren't remarkably versatile, right? <laughs> right, yeah. You know, it's it's pretty rough, but, uh, but yeah. So um, what I do like is uh, I think in season like four or five, the uh the landlord shows up oh have you seen the landlord no okay he's basically an ancient vampire clearly modeled on gary oldman in uh <laughs> bram stoker's dracula not not entirely but just the way that he right the way he dresses and the way he talks and he's just uh he's just a complete monster but anyway so i've been enjoying it quite a bit uh but it's also been having an adverse effect on me <laughs> all right well hopefully you get that rectified by next week uh We'll talk to you soon. Bye.